Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. For me personally, a sample size of one is the most important. If something makes me feel good, it's probably good for me. If something makes me feel bad, it's probably bad for me. (laughs) Especially since we're talking about food. I'm amazed sometimes at how many friends I have who are fit, healthy, everything's great. They go to the doctor, they come home and they're like, my doctor told me after have to completely change what I'm eating. I'm like, why? You look great. Everything's fine. Why would you change a thing? There are people that can make claims all the time about these kinds of things, but there's no conclusive links. This is also what I would take us. take a deep breath. This is the healthiest the human race has ever been, ever. We yeah. live longer than ever before. People are dying of almost any disease you can mention at lower rates than ever before. This idea that somehow the food is poisoning us and we're all in mortal danger is, is somewhat bizarre. We're doing great. This is going to be one of my favorite podcasts because we're talking about food. I'm here with Dr. Aaron Carroll, a New York Times columnist on food, but also the author of the just published The Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. Dr. Carroll, can I call you Aaron? Absolutely, of course. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So so Aaron, there's, there's a billion things I want to talk to you about, but let's just, I just want to, because it's fun, I just want to read the titles of your chapters <laughs> sure. because I'm hoping each one of these things is 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 we can we can reduce or we can change some of the myths on. So butter, meat, eggs, salt, gluten, GMOs, alcohol, coffee. I don't know what or I wish I could ask the audience what order we should go in first. I sort of feel like, you know what? I'm going to go with coffee first. Okay. Just because I drink 3 to 5 cups of coffee a day. I probably don't drink coffee afternoon. But I swear to God, among my friends, it's 50-50. Some people say coffee is the worst thing you should do. Some people say, oh, no problem. I, I need my coffee for the day. What's, oh, oh I, in general, I just want to add, you kind of, what I really like about your approach is you, you, you look at all the scientific research that's been done on these things. And, and your basic point is either the consumer or the media misinterprets a lot of scientific results or... The studies are constructed so that, oh, half the studies are good and half the studies right. are bad, which is why for me personally, and I've had this discussion actually with Tim Ferriss on the podcast, it's a sample size of one is the most important. Right. Like if something makes me feel good, it's probably good for me. If something makes me feel bad, it's probably bad for Especially me. Especially <laughs> since we're talking about food. I'm amazed sometimes at how many friends I have who are fit, healthy, everything's great. They go to the doctor, they come home and they're like, my doctor told me I have to completely change what I'm eating. I'm like, Why? You look great. Everything's fine. Like, well, why would you change a thing? Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question that has nothing to do with the book. So, I haven't been to. I've been to a dentist and a psychiatrist, but since I was eighteen, I haven't been to any other kind of doctor. Um, my pediatrician sure. and your pediatrician. Yes. The last doctor I've been to was my pediatrician before I went off to college. Right. And am I? I'm going to be fifty next month. 
Am I making a big, I'm, I feel fine. So the truth of the matter is that as long as you're healthy and everything is good, what doctors really might be good for is first just discussing risks that might exist in your life that you might otherwise not know about. But if you're well read and you know what's going on, you probably do. And the second is just to make sure you start getting tests that you might need as you hit 50, like a colonoscopy. Do I really need that? So colonoscopy, if you follow the guidelines, is one of the few where probably the evidence in favor of getting it outweighs the harms and that it actually does pick up colon cancer and might save your life. Now, it's still, we're talking not a huge risk, and it depends on your family risk and everything else. Right, nobody but, in my family has ever had colon right. cancer. No one in my family has ever had any kind of cancer. Uh, but I guess the environment could cause colon cancer as well. Anything, we or just really bad know. luck. So it's like that's one of the few that you probably could think about getting periodically. But but again, you could tell me, like, you could just go to a gastroenterologist and get that. I don't know that you need to go to a, a primary care physician. The I'm evidence- so bad at going to yeah. doctors. I'm lazy. The, I don't have insurance. The evidence behind well care is so much less than people think it is. I mean, the idea that we need checkups other than- getting vaccines and doing the tests that we know work in terms of screening. There's just not a lot of evidence behind being a primary care doctor. I've just pissed off half the audience that, that of course, that are doctors by saying that. Oh, half my audience is not doctors. Oh, so when I meant of the doctors yeah. listening now, they're all very angry. But it's it, it, there's just not a lot of good evidence for it. So if you're fine and you're healthy, I, I don't know that I'd tell you to change much. Well, um, given that, what kind of, and I know we're going to get to your book because I yeah, love sure. your book. What kind of insurance should I get? I have no insurance. I, I illegally have no insurance. So Although I, mean, I think it, they just changed that rule. I don't know. Well, they might. In fact, it, well, that's the Senate voted yes to get rid of it. We'll see if it holds up. So yeah. I, I think it's probably a good idea to have health insurance, but probably more for financial security than it is for, for health implications. Should I get like what? What I I know nothing. I've never in my life signed up for insurance other than what my you know the the occasional insurance that was just given to me. Um, but probably the the plan with the highest deductible and the lowest premium is probably good for you. If you're healthy, you're not going to consume healthcare, and you're just having it in case you need it. You want as close to a catastrophic plan as you can get, which these days is the highest deductible, lowest premium. Is cancer uh, associated with catastrophic or no? It's a separate. So thing. it's not that it's cancer, but but what it means is that if you get truly sick, you would have to pay more before the insurance would kick in. But if you don't use it, you save money. Yeah. each year because the premium is lower. So I have ulcerative colitis. I need healthcare every single year. So what's ulcerative colitis? So it's a it's a it's an it's a disease where my colon sort of attacks itself an autoimmune disease. It's sort of related to Crohn's disease. It's it's part of the inflammatory bowel disease. Is that, so, is that a genetic thing or was it It's familial. By bad food? No, it's <laughs> Oh no, no, not bad food at all. It's familial. My mom has it, my brother has Crohn's disease. The GI tract can't be good in my family, but I have to take an immunosuppressant. I have to, uh, you know, just keep an eye on certain things. But as long as I'm well maintained, everything's fine. I have to have colonoscopies, much more common than. So, you. if you didn't have healthcare, how much would you spend per year on on medicine? Oh, ungodly amounts. I mean, my medicine like is terribly. Oh, just just in the healthcare alone, I I could spend between well between that and therapist. It's like I easily blow through my twenty five hundred dollar deductible personally every year. But, I mean, are we talking like you would spend a hundred thousand? No, I mean, if I got sick, potentially yes. I mean, a hospitalization or if I needed surgery, then then yes, maybe. But just my regular health maintenance is probably four thousand dollars. But I have a family, so that's me. That's before the right. rest of the family. So, um, but kids are like disease magnets, so they need everything. They do, and it's like, and you just you just don't know. And again, it's partially it's also I get it through my job, so it's not a huge. Yeah, extra expense for me, but it's for the financial security. It's so if an accident happens, if somebody got really sick, you're not going to get stuck with a multi hundred thousand dollar bill. That's the killer. Like, Are that's you more doctor you. than writer? So, 
It's that's a great question. I don't do a lot of clinical practice. I maybe a half day a week every other week, but I work in the school of medicine. I mentor a lot of of uh, researchers and who are who are also physicians in the school of medicine. I do a lot of medical research. Can you be my primary research. doctor if I get insurance? So I'll give you my phone number. I spend more time doing primary care for my friends on the phone than I do actually being a doctor. So that's, happy to do it. That's really interesting. But that's are what you, you need. That's honestly what most people need as a doctor, just somebody to answer their questions. Yeah. I truly believe that. Are you, If you're trained as a pediatrician, are you allowed to be a primary doctor? I so don't know I, I take, I spend more time, I if friends were probably listening to this, I spend more time taking care of my adult friends on the phone than I do being a pediatrician. But they, you're allowed to. Sure. Like you're licensed. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to, let's get to the bad food Bible. Um, uh, and, and related to this, you, you mentioned the word inflammation in, in, in describing what you have. I feel like the latest craze is not about any one food, but about inflammation. And that of, and that the whole idea is avoid foods that cause, or, or liquids that cause inflammation. And so that's the argument against, for instance, carbs and alcohol and coffee. So for instance, coffee is acidic. The idea is then, and this is, this is the bad news on coffee that I hear yep. is that it causes because it's acidic, it causes inflammation, which is related to every other disease in the world, heart attack, strokes, cancer, the whole thing. And that's the beginning of every bad food argument. Right. And it, it's- Is that I, true or not? I think, first of all, you're hitting the nail on the head when you said it was a craze. So right now we're all focused on inflammation. It's the panic du jour. Um, I don't think there's a lot of good evidence that, that that's necessarily going to hold out, that that's true. But even then, there's almost no link between the foods that you're describing and the terrible diseases that you're describing with respect to inflammation. And with coffee, especially, coffee's been better studied than almost anything else, even with randomized controlled trials. We don't see those negative implications. If anything, people who drink coffee tend to be much healthier than the people who don't. And that holds up in all kinds of studies. I'm going I'm to just throw every argument against you sure. on, on coffee and then we'll hit the other foods. Yep. Because I um, obviously... Like it, it seems like every woman I've ever been involved with is healthier than me on food, so they always <laughs> lecture me. Um, so I'll give you every argument they've ever thrown at me. Okay. Um, you address, but I already knew this, uh, the diuretic act aspect. Yeah. So meaning coffee will dehydrate you. But I never understood this conceptually because when you make a cup of coffee, it's all water. Right. And they drip coffee. It's water. I mean, so, you're drinking, it's mostly water. And not only, I mean, first of all, your body is incredibly good at preventing you from getting dehydrated. Like it's well constructed. People are not getting dehydrated randomly. So what they do with those kinds of studies, the way that they make the idea that it's going to dehydrate you is they can show that if you drink caffeine or drink coffee, in the very short time period after that, your urine volume goes up a little. Yeah, but that's because you're drinking. I never drink five cups of water right. in the morning, but I'll drink five cups of coffee. Right. But so of course my urine's going to go up. And not only that, but if they follow it, let's say for the rest of the 24-hour period, immediately after you make more urine, your body goes, we got to stop this, releases hormones that slow your urine. So your entire urine output is exactly the same. The body doesn't just keep doing that. It's really good at compensating. Why did it, why, where did that even come from? Like, why do like every single person I know says, "Oh, you're going to get dehydrated if you just drink coffee"? Because they do those short-term studies and makes a big splash in some news story. Well, who cares if I'm dehydrated? I'll just drink I, water then. There's a scourge out there of dehydration, according to the newspapers. I mean, it's like I can't. Every year, there's another study that says that half of all children are dehydrated. It's a terrible study, and and that's how we get to the point where now we have articles where people say you got to drink eight glasses of water a year. Which is, I mean, eight grams of water a day, excuse me, which is crazy. There's no science behind that whatsoever. There's I, no idea. It's, I remember in Tony sense. Robbins' first book, this is like 1980 something, he said, you know, drink the eight cups of water, also drink, have a lot of fruit so you get the benefits of water from that. But then he even took it back in his next book. He was willing to admit that he made a mistake yeah. in them. 
So, okay, so coffee, the next thing is the acidity and the inflammation. Is that is what people say? So if, if it's acidic and it makes your stomach hurt, fine. I'm not demanding that you drink it, but no. Again, your stomach, your stomach contents are incredibly acidic. Coffee's nothing compared to like the hydrochloric acid or whatever you're going to find in your stomach. So, really? Yeah. What do you mean nothing? I mean, it's not nearly as acidic. Like it would be like, it's almost like putting water in there. It's going to make it more basic because it's not as acidic as your stomach content. So the idea that it's somehow you're adding acid that's otherwise not there is that is just not true. Because right, the whole function of the stomach right is to just burn up all right, the other to food. To make in there. acid, that's what it does. Which is why you take the medications we sometimes prescribe people who have heartburn are to stop that acid production. I mean, they're H two blockers or things like that. Coffee's not going to do that. It doesn't cause ulcers. It doesn't make, you know, it doesn't doesn't give you indigestion. And it, it does not cause all of these problems that people say. Okay, the next thing that they say, and like literally this is all from other sure. people telling me not to drink yeah. coffee. So the next thing people say is um, it'll boost something that makes you, it boosts some hormone or chemical that makes you think you're not tired. But then once that wears off, you've burned yourself out and now you're even more tired. I, I, I'm making a face only because I don't even like that. Uh, there's no study of that at all. There's no evidence that that is true. Uh, there's no idea that you know you have to. You're artificially boosting things, and then there's some kind of of um, collapse. It's, it's not even afterwards. that you're artificially boosting things. Is that you're suppressing the chemical that makes you think you're tired? I've never heard that. I've no, I've seen no evidence, and I've read about every study I could possibly find on that, and I've never seen any evidence for that. We're whatsoever. gonna have to, it. Really, should be every woman I've ever. I was gonna say, get them in the, here. Uh, we gotta talk about that. I don't know. Table. Yeah, no. I mean, again, it's like this is where it is. I would say, like they do studies, not just like big cohort observational studies of looking at people and seeing what they do or don't do, but they do actual randomized controlled trials, like you would do with drugs, where they're giving people coffee or not, and the people that get coffee do better. So, so they do better in what? They do better in terms of some diseases with respect to, to sometimes uh, um, cholesterol levels if it's, if it's run through paper or with respect to uh, having lower rates of some cancer or with liver. Really? I mean, liver disease, it, Why does coffee it's so help strong. With that? No one knows. I mean, that's a really good question. Um, there have been lots of theories, but no one knows. But, but the liver disease stuff is so amazing because it's sort of like if you don't have liver disease, people that drink coffee have to tend lower rates of it. If you do have liver disease, people that drink coffee are in better control. If you get liver cirrhosis, you, you do better if you drink. I mean, at every stage, it appears that drinking, to, to where they're, they're in the review articles, the authors go so far as to say, we're hesitant to ever like use this kind of data to tell people start drinking coffee, but we're thinking about telling people start drinking coffee. Well, it's interesting because, and we started talking about this outside, but I said, let's hold this for the podcast. Uh, about, a, about a year and a half ago, uh, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, Deepak Chopra's brother, was on uh, the podcast, and he said the number one thing for your health is coffee mm. because of all the antioxidants in it, even outside the caffeine. And you were skeptical there, so too. I'm skeptical only with respect to the antioxidants, because people often throw out antioxidants as like the reason that organic food is better than conventionally grown food. It has more antioxidants. Well, first of all, Antioxidants encompass a huge group of chemicals that are not all the same. And so uh, you can't just sort of say antioxidant. It's like, which one are you talking about? What do you think the benefits are going to be and how are they going to work? Because when they do studies of individual antioxidants or even groups of them to try to improve people's health, those trials often fail. And so, you know, we understand why human beings need a certain amount of antioxidants to prevent cell damage, but there's no real good evidence that more antioxidants, once you sort of got your supply, 
does much in terms of improving. So if all health. I do eat all day long is eat like blackberries, it's not gonna. No. What what if I eat a little some blackberries? That's fine. This again, I'm not gonna ever tell you not to do something that works for you. I try very hard not to be judgmental with food, but if you were thinking about starting it because you believe it's gonna make a big difference in your health, no evidence for that at all. So so we'll get to the good things after we run through all the sure. bad things because I the bad things are of more concern to me at the moment. But um. What about just the benefits of coffee in terms of like, it, while I drink coffee, I feel like, okay, I could write a little better. I could, I'm a little more awake. I'm a little smart. Particularly if I, if I don't drink coffee for a couple of days and then I do drink it, yeah. it's like, boom. Then great. If it's working for you and you feel good. The reason Why I- Why does caffeine work? Well, it, it does stimulate. It causes, uh, make, it does stimulate your body in a certain number of ways with respect perhaps your heart rate and perhaps in your brain and also with your blood vessels constricting. We give caffeine to very premature babies in the neonatal intensive care unit to make them breathe if they're really? not breathing well because it, it makes them active. It actually makes them breathe. So they will get caffeine in, in, in an IV uh, sometimes to help them to remember to breathe. We're not positive if it's reacting in the brain or in the, where it is, but yeah, it's a stimulant. And so we use it. It works. So if you're getting a benefit from it in respect to drinking it, the reason I wrote the chapter and I'd written a column on it originally was that the thing is, I would never say like, do it if you don't and you don't like it. Fine. But it's not a vice. It's not bad. If you feel that it's good for you and you're getting a benefit from it, there's no evidence at all that it's bad for you. You should stop worrying about it and do what you like. Well, if I, if okay, here's the other question. If I drink it past noon, will it keep me awake at night? You'd have to tell me if it keeps you awake at night. There's there's no good answer. Really, you know then what? go ahead. Sometimes it doesn't I matter. drink it at six o'clock and it doesn't keep me awake. I can drink it any time of the day or night. It doesn't affect me at all. Other people swear that it does. And again, I'm not going to argue with the people's individual perceptions of it. But so, if it works for you, do whatever you like. So it's 2.46 p.m. Hey, Jake, can you get me a cup of coffee? <laughs> I'm going to have sure. two cups of coffee, actually. Two? Yeah. Feel free. Yeah, I can make a French press right now. All right, good. Thanks. I, I I need coffee all day long, I feel. Sometimes my my schedule's been weird lately about sleep because normally I'm a early to bed, early to rise type mm -hmm. of guy, but lately I've been late to bed, early to rise, yep. and so I'm not getting as much sleep, so coffee's been helpful for, for that. If it's great, then that's that's perfect. The thing is you shouldn't worry. There's almost There's really no evidence that it's bad for you. So, okay, um... Alcohol, you really surprised me here. Okay. Um, now, and by the way, my my the numbers you suggest are the exact same numbers my therapist suggested I look for in men and women to determine if they're abusing alcohol. Well, those are sort of the widely accepted, I think, levels. So I didn't make them up. Right. Um, so, but I, in general, I, there was a seven-year period where I avoided alcohol completely. Mm -hmm. Now it's like at a minimum. Um, but I always say to myself, it's a poison at heart. Like there's a toxic level. So I should. Why am I drinking a poison at all? But you basically say, if, particularly for like red wine, it actually there's a, evidence to suggest that a glass or two a day makes you live longer. So that's the thing is that it's that no. First of all, we should we should be very clear. No, I'm not advocating for the abuse of alcohol. If you drink too much alcohol, it's incredibly it's horrible. So I mean, generally, what people think is for men more than. Uh, two drinks a day, or no, no more than 14 a week, no more than three or four in a day. So one to two a day is, is good. For women, it's more like one a day. Um, and, and when you get above that, that's when we start to worry about alcohol misuse. And of course, alcohol abuse is terrible, associated with horrible outcomes, tons of deaths every year. I'm not advocating for that at all. But people that tell you that the one to two drinks a day for men are bad for you, there's not good evidence for that. So sometimes they can find some studies which show very small links between low levels of alcohol and some cancers, but you can't cherry pick. 
though it's bad for some cancers, it's actually protective for some other cancers in those same kinds of studies. And if you believe those kinds of studies, there's the same kind of evidence that shows that it reduce, reduces the risk of heart disease, of diabetes, and even death. And more people die of heart disease than do of cancer. And so it actually might be that the protective effects are greater than the detrimental effects. Certainly like uh, alcoholics, like a, a people bad. who are abusing it. Totally bad. They have all sorts of problems. Horrible. No so what, what, what do you think? What What do you think makes it good at a small amount but bad at a high amount? I, I wish I could tell you what the exact mechanism is. Some people propose stuff having to do with with the heart or uh, sort of the heart health, or with respect to blood vessels and perhaps man, uh, maintaining cholesterol levels or how fat goes to your body. No one really knows the answer. And again, this is where I'll say I'm not trying to tell you if you don't drink alcohol, go out and start drinking alcohol, but. If you drink alcohol responsibly and you enjoy one drink a day, the evidence is more in your favor than against it. We should stop worrying about it so much. Uh, I'll tell you why alcohol and coffee are like the first two things I ask about. And actually, you have other chapters in here as well. But um, So the alcohol and coffee are, are the first two things I ask about. I noticed this about 20 years ago, that if I had both alcohol and co coffee mm. before a party, I tend to be kind of shy. Um then boom, the party is much better for me. Yeah, because because the alcohol will reduce inhibitions a little right. bit, and the coffee makes me more creative. So more creativity with less inhibitions if on the life of the party. And if you're not <laughs> abusing it, that's fine. I mean that that's really what I'm trying to get to. Is the, it's it's the moralizing, it's the scare tactics, it's the idea that we have to be afraid of everything. If you have a drink of coffee and a and a drink of alcohol, and you feel like your day is better, awesome. I think that's fine. Yeah, I should start off my day with alcohol. But, <laughs> the problem is I think people, if you, again, I guess if you could, it's not good for some jobs. They won't like that. And usually people who start drinking early in the morning tend to have problems not drinking much more during the rest of the day. So, but then there's the, then there's the whole, which is a big problem in much scientific research, there's the whole cause and effect issue, right. which is, you know, and this is this you could argue on the, on the with alcohol on both the good side and the bad side. A lot of people who drink red, so red wine is sort of, known for having, and you mentioned it's known for having some positive effects or, or or people who drink red wine have X, Y, and Z positive things happen to them. But it could also be the kind of people who drink red wine tend to be on a Mediterranean diet and the Mediterranean diet might have enough other benefits that it looks like people who drink so, red wine are helpful. While I would agree with you that a lot of studies would do that, they've actually done randomized controlled trials, which mm. would account, which would get rid of that. So you're right, when they do cohort studies or observational studies or epidemiologic studies where they're just saying, who drinks red wine, hands go up, who doesn't, and then drink. You're right, there could be other things associated with it. But all other things equal, if I randomize people, you guys are getting water, you guys are getting alcohol, and the people that get alcohol do better, that takes a lot of those potential confounders out of play, which is why the randomized controlled trial is the best kind of study for that. So before we get into carbs, which is going to be my favorite topic here, um, I do want to address my absolute favorite food ingredient on any food <laughs> at all. Like the this food ingredient, it's not a food, it's an ingredient, is so tasty. I cannot stop eating it once I eat anything with on it. MSG. Yeah. Now, okay, here's what everybody says. MSG will give you headaches. No, well, again, if you are a person and you believe MSG is going to give you headaches, it's very possible MSG is going to give you headaches. But when we do- Why do you say that? Do you think we can convince ourselves? Yes, because this what they do is they will do, again, randomized blinded studies where they will get a group of people together who all believe that they're, they get headaches from MSG and they give some of them MSG and they give some of them placebo, like mm. not MSG. Mm. And then they say, who gets the headaches? And they say in equal amounts because they mm. think they're getting the headache or they think they're getting the MSG. They get the headache. The placebo effect is massively powerful. And that's the kind of study you need to do to prove these things 
have an effect like headaches. And when they and they have done some amazingly sophisticated placebo-controlled, randomized-controlled trials with MSG, and those studies showed over time it's incredibly inconsistent. People, even the people that say they're the most susceptible to it, not consistently, and that's with huge doses of it, not the amount you get real and food. So, so obviously, MSG tastes really good. Is it bad for you at all? It's hard to find like sort of levels that would say that it is. I mean, as I, w- I would say that overdoing anything is probably not good for you, but the amount of MSG that people are getting in regular diets, even when they periodically consume foods that are high in MSG, the answer is no. There are cultures that consume way more MSG than people do in the United States, and they're all doing great. It's not like the scourge of, you know, that somehow they're all dying earlier or have all these diseases or headaches or Alzheimer's disease or many of the other things that people attribute to MSG. They're doing great. So if I took the Mediterranean diet and just sprinkled like MSG all over my grape leaves or whatever, probably before. Well, fine. I'm curious to know how that would. Ta- I don't know how that would taste, but it's if you like, good. if you liked it, it's good. well, first of all, it's amazing because almost any time I eat a snack food and I'm like, that is amazingly. It's always MSG. It's right. always MSG. So so um, you have a couple other things in here, um, but I want to I want to go in the order of things I'm interested in. Okay. Um, let's talk carbs for for quite a bit mm-hmm. <laughs> because. I would say uh, when I stopped eating, I'm I'm like I love carbs in every w- way, shape, or form. When I stopped eating pasta at night, I do think my my I I would get less bloated at night. I lost weight. I do think for me, not having even though I love so much like pasta at night, I I, I haven't eaten pasta since like in years oh. and. Uh, and I do think it's made me uh, feel better, or not necessarily feel better, but um, lose weight. So that it's possible. I mean, again, it's like so. Here's maybe because I would eat too much of it. Well, that <laughs> pro- pasta, like most carbs that you consume, are processed in general by definition. I mean, nobody eats wheat, and just you don't go eat. You have to have it processed in some way. It's bread, it's pasta, it's other things that have you know that are complex carbohydrates. And so, I think one of the rules that I would agree with, and I get into sort of at the end of the book, is that you probably want to limit. Your processed foods as much as possible. What does processed foods mean? It means food where the, something's been done to the ingredient before you get it. Like what? Anything. Making bread. Like when you buy a steak, steak is an ingredient. That It's just the meat. They haven't done anything to it. I mean, other than you know cutting it and perhaps just you know doing it. When you drink, when you buy ingredients, vet, most vegetables that you eat are not processed in any way. Nothing has been done to them. Orange juice is processed because you were intended to eat the orange or the apple. Apple juice is a way for you to get the apple goodness into you far more easily than you otherwise would. That's but then you not, miss out on the fiber and right, all these things. You go too fast, you consume too much. So processing in general, um, and I'm I, I'm not just including like the things that most people think of as processed food, like the heavily you know machined snack foods. It's just stuff that's been done to it. So as much as possible, you want to make your food from unprocessed ingredients. You want to have lightly processed foods less commonly, heavily processed foods even less commonly because processing in general makes it too easy for us to get more than we want or need into our bodies. So so processed foods, so so kind of the philosophical idea here is that processed foods takes a regular food, like something out of the ground right. or, or shot or whatever, and does something to make the ingestion of it easier and that might distort the amount right. that you take, and That's then that prob- becomes right. abusive. So pasta is like, yeah, it's so easy, and it's easy to eat bread. It's so easy. It's like you know, and it tastes delicious. Yeah, I can pasta. eat a loaf of bread, so no problem. I think sometimes when people go low carb, they wind up 
really eliminating a lot of processed foods. Same way that when people, I think, go no gluten, they wind up eliminating a lot of processed foods. And then they say, I lost so much weight, or I feel great, I'm thrilled. But that isn't necessarily because you went low carb. When they do head-to-head diets. How is pasta processed? I don't know. Because again, it's your, first of all, you've turned the wheat into flour, then you've taken the flour and you've combined it with water. And and, uh, I mean, it's work, it's work. So by the time you get to it, you're like, this is a really easy way to eat a lot of calories. Ah, I see. It's just not, you know, it's not, a vegetable. Because how much, how, what's the, I don't know what a good dose of wheat is, but how many doses of wheat, how many healthy doses of wheat am I eating in a bowl of pasta? I wish I could tell you like that there's a, an answer. Probably the, the other problem is that we probably consume too much of it at a time. Um, and then we're not eating the amount. We eat a lot of pasta. Because but, I don't think it satiates you very well either. It doesn't have necessarily a lot of fat in it. And there's no protein. And so it is just carbs. And a lot of people believe that carbs are not as satiating as many other things. In fact, there's a lot of people- Because doesn't carbs like just convert into sugar? Yeah, well, much more easily. It's just mm-hmm. sort of that pathway. There are a lot of people that believe that when we were in the 60s and 70s, when we went purely anti-fat and anti-meat, because that contained a lot of fat, what else were you going to eat? Carbs. And that it was everybody's shift into carbs, which might have helped the obesity epidemic really take off. And caused a lot of the problems that we have. So it was getting. Now we're all trying to. Now many people are shifting back to fat and getting away from carbs. But I wouldn't say that anti-carb is the answer any more than anything else is, because when they do head-to-head diets of you know, anti, you know, low, low fat, low carb, they all work about the same. You see a benefit, then it trickles off. A lot of people rebound. There's no magic answer that works for everybody. So I'd say the same thing that I'd say to you. That I'd say if it works for you, I'm thrilled. But if you feel like you're depriving yourself because you haven't had pasta in years, I'd say there's probably very little danger of once in a while enjoying it. Oh no, I, I don't know if I can. I'm a, I'm a, I'd have to go to rehab or something. Like, <laughs> well, I if love you can't control it. Yeah, in the same way, if people can't control what their alcohol intake, they should probably not drink any alcohol at all. If you can't control it, that's fine. I, I have tried going no carb. In fact, the last six months, I was giving it a shot again because I found the same thing you did. When I go no carb, I feel like I lose a lot of water weight my weight comes down a bit, but it always plateaus at the same place and then I'm miserable. And after a couple months, I'm like at an Italian restaurant. I'm like, what am I doing to myself? And then I say, you know what? I'm going to have the pasta. And then like three weeks later, I realize I'm the exact same weight. Nothing has changed. And yeah. I'm loving, I'm enjoying myself again. So why am I bothering? trying to control portion control. That, and I think it's, again, it's, I, I do think that, that the, the processing and, and being mindful of what you're eating and being careful about it matters much more. And often, carbohydrates are just too easy. It's just too easy. Uh, that's really interesting because you're saying it basically breaks down much faster than like meat or but something that, like it's that. Like, I mean, you can drink a soda and get so many, so much sugar. I mean, massive amounts yeah, of sugar. You drink it in a minute. You don't even know. I mean, just huge amounts of, of empty calories. And a lot of foods are like that. So, so two things that actually have hurt me, not just... Um, not just like over time I could feel better or worse, but like if I have ice cream at night mm-hmm. or if I have a bagel, like <laughs> I actually feel pain in my stomach lately. Not not when I was younger, but only after, let's say I turned 40. Right. Um, those two things have hurt me. This is when I would say don't do it. But I wouldn't necessarily start giving out advice to the general population. Right. Because I don't know what's doing that to you. It's not common. There's no good studies that show there's a widespread problem. But again, 
you don't need it. Like if I have ice cream at night uh, in the morning, I usually feel stomach ache. Then don't like then nauseous. don't do that. I mean, I can we could run down a list of what that could be, but but it's probably something that's particular to you and yeah. not necessarily to ice cream for most everybody. And bagels, I seem to have a hard time digesting. Digesting. No somehow. one needs a bagel. It's like if you like bagels, that's great. But I I have bagels like twice a year um, yeah. for holidays, and that's like it. And no, otherwise, I I'm just don't eat bagels. Yeah. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Every podcast I do is so personal and special to me. The podcast is all about how people can be better performers, even peak performers at whatever it is they are passionate about. So help people discover this podcast. Help me, help the listeners. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. And also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. But here's the thing about both dairy and carbs and wheat in general. So wheat was kind of um, started being harvested about 10,000 years ago. And as primates, we've been around for two and a half million years. Mm -hmm. So it's really like just the consumption, like the the addition of wheat in our diets, like, you know, less than one half of 1% of the the lifespan of our species. And so, so it might not be natural for us to eat Wheat so we might thing. not have to have it, but I don't think it's hurting. The, so the thing about wheat, so like wheat and rice constitute like 40% of the world's calories because they're easy to grow and there's huge parts of the world where that's what they can get. And so, you know, to say like no one should have wheat or rice would leave huge swaths of the world hungry. Yeah. So that's not the answer either. On the other hand, do you have to have it? No. So if you don't want it or it doesn't agree with you, I have no problem if you want to try to limit it. My problem is when people say, no, 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 no one should have it uh, because it is bad for you. And then I counted, there's really not a lot of evidence. But, but then but then there's like, like with, with, with dairy, the reason I bring up yeah. uh, ice cream and, and dairy in general, and that includes butter, which is on your list, yep. is that, uh, you know, no, in no other species after Correct. childhood do they consume dairy? No, that's a whole that's a whole myth brought on by the government and the dairy industry. I mean, that they do yeah, consume dairy. That you do that we need to have that milk makes a body good, or you know, like strong bones and teeth, blah blah blah. In fact, the evidence that they do when they do randomized controlled trials of of middle-aged women seeing if we can prevent osteoporosis or bone breaks, or th- no evidence at all, doesn't well, work. So- so it's, what should a woman have? Like, because there is they do have problems with bone structure. You need certain amounts of calcium, but it's like, but most Americans are getting that in their diet. I mean, the idea that supplementation with milk that you must have it is absolutely there's no evidence for it at all. Um, and in fact, some of the studies show that people who drink lots of milk actually, for some reason, have an increased risk of bone fracture. I don't know why, but this myth that that it's definitely necessary is not there. You've identified the truth that that other than human beings, no no other mammal drinks milk outside of the neonatal toddler period. I mean, you, you wean off of it and then you're done. Um, we have to go to other animals to get the milk to keep drinking it. Now, dairy is a decent source of calcium. If that's where you get it, that's fine. I think ice cream is delicious. If you want to have it as dessert, that's fine. I'm not going to argue. But you should have it because you want it, 
not because you feel that you need it. And unfortunately, with milk, we give it a pass in a way that we don't any other beverage with calories. So for some reason, we think milk is healthy, even though it has sugar, even though it has calories. But we would tell everyone else, no, no, only drink water. So I, I don't. There's there's no good reason for that. There's it's not necessary. Again, if you like it, fine, but you don't need it. So so uh, let's let's talk for well let's talk for a second about uh, I, I want to add to the carbs discussion, sure. which is because I met someone yesterday who told me um, that she's anti gluten. Yeah, and. I don't even know what is gluten. <laughs> so gluten is part of the wheat molecule. It's what gives uh, certain products with wheat sort of the, the sponginess or the, it's what makes bread feel good mm. or taste good. It's and of course it's in so many things. It's in it's in beer. It's in rye. It's in all kinds of other products. So it's in a huge number of foods that we eat that all have wheat. People who have celiac disease have some sort of autoimmune reaction to gluten where it causes inflammation in their bodies and they can't absorb nutrients correctly. It's very bad for you. They absolutely must avoid gluten entirely. They constitute less than 1% of the population. But does everybody, like, are, here's the question about disease. Is disease really a spectrum? Like, do we all have celiac disease, but those with it, with, who are actually diagnosed with it have it so much that so it affects So that's them? an excellent question, and that is the argument people use these days to try to justify not avoiding gluten. So I was going to say, there's there's celiac disease, there's wheat allergy. Those two groups may want to, you know, have to avoid gluten. They definitely need to avoid wheat, especially if they're wheat allergy. But again, they're less than one and a half, maybe less than 2% of the U.S. population. The other 20 plus percent of people who are avoiding gluten say they're gluten intolerant, and they will argue that they are on some sort of spectrum where it doesn't agree with them. The problem is we can do studies of those people. and We find that when we do studies, the vast majority of them don't meet the strict criteria by which we would define gluten intolerance. And when in placebo-controlled trials, we put them on gluten or gluten-free diets, they don't see a real resolution to their symptoms because once again, the placebo effect takes hold. And so they get the same benefit out of the placebo diet, which still has gluten, and the gluten-free diet. They, they actually wind up giving them the same diet and then they give them basically pieces of bread or muffin and they don't know whether gluten's in it or not. Mm. And then they see if they get better and it doesn't work. And that's proof positive because if you if it if we that's how we show this is a placebo effect with gluten it's actually what we call a nocebo effect which is the opposite where it's not that they think they're getting a benefit from something they think they're getting a harm and a benefit from removing it and that's what most people are seeing with with gluten I guess for me um, bringing down my carbs I feel like I've lost weight but the reality is is that just simply bringing down carbs has made me eat less right because when you go to the grocery store, like 90% of the things in there, except uh, the aisles, yeah. uh, the, the outside aisles, as they say, uh, are carbs. Well, I've often go crazy because I'll, you know, I'll go to meetings and I'll have breakfast and it's, it's, it's dessert. I mean, that's what it is. It's just a, it's a whole bunch yeah, of like carbs. Pancakes are, are cake. <laughs> yeah. It's like fried cake. I mean, they take oil and they take, it's basically what it is. And you know, danishes are cake and cereal is borderline sugar cake or whatever it is. And, uh, bagels are just, it's, it's just big carbs. Then, so I agree with you. It's just too easy to get more than you. Plus we take the, the pancakes and we drench it in like sugar syrup. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, yeah, we'd probably all be better off if we had eggs and bacon. Um, okay, tell me about bacon. You don't. You mentioned bacon briefly in the book, but not that much. So bacon, it definitely gets in the meat. So, so first of all, I would say that the evidence against meat is far less than people would have you believe. I but, mean, they're but really bacon's like fried. So bacon is in the, the group of processed meats which have the strongest evidence against them, and they're the ones that like 
people say, well, we've proven that bacon causes, or the processed meat causes cancer. I have a real problem with the word causes there because we're still not doing randomized controlled trial. We still don't know what's causal. But even if you buy the argument, uh, people will argue that the studies overall show that processed meat raises your relative risk of colon cancer by 18%, which sounds scary. But that would mean that if I chose today to eat an extra three pieces of bacon every day for the rest of my life, which I'm not going to do, my mm, overall lifetime that. risk of colon, I might like to, but I probably would My overall lifetime risk of colon cancer might go up one half of 1%. What about weight? Bacon doesn't have that much calories. You'd be surprised. Like that, that's like- uh. I'm gonna start eating bacon again. Yeah, well, this is a, why. I love bacon. Why do people okay, avoid but fried it? food though? You you don't actually don't talk about this in the so in that the book. that gets in the fats. Well, a little bit I think with with butter and fats, but you're right with fried food. But again, properly fried food, if it's not drenched and dripping with oil, it's like a, there's just not the evidence there that you would you would think it is. So if it's saturated fat, that's the one thing left that that there's probably decent evidence that too much saturated fat could be linked to cholesterol, could be linked to heart disease. Too that's much. Some of that too much. What does too much mean? That's a great question because no one has a good answer for that. So that's where, you know, some people will say no more than 10% of your calories, but that's, it's still not nearly as solid a link as you would hope. And so like if, if I get fried calamari, is that kind of bad? Once in a while. I mean, I wouldn't eat it every meal of every day or every right. day, but no, once in a while you're fine. I have it. Yeah. And it's like, and it's just the idea when they do these kinds of studies, often they're talking about servings a day. So when they're talking about processed meat again, it's, it's extra servings a day. I'm not advocating that you add extra servings of bacon a day. Have bacon every once in a while. There's no real evidence that that's that bad for you. And we're talking again, I, my lifetime risk would go up one half of 1%. That's really small for I, eating that much bacon. I mean, I guess which leads into the, well, we'll talk about meats more in a second, but I, it also leads into the discussion of, of fats. So two things. One is um, my nutritionist is um, a 15-year-old girl who's my daughter. Okay. I was going to say, you don't have a primary care doctor, but you have a nutritionist, but okay. Good. No, no. She she watches all these YouTube videos yeah, and she's right. become she's become uh, plant-based and mm -hmm. vegan. Like she, and she's very healthy. She's, yep. she's been healthy since birth. I have to commend her, but because uh, it didn't come from me. Yep. And um, But she, her phrase to me is, fat is called fat for a reason. Mm. <laughs> And so, so what's the story? There's no fat? evidence that eating fat makes you fat. That is a total, total myth. And so, yes, animals have fat because that's one of the ways that we store energy. And we have fat because that is one of the ways that we store energy. But eating other animals' fat is not what makes you fat. There's, that, that has been disproved again and again and again. So, What makes us fat? Well, probably eating too. That's where, like, you will get into different people that argue about it. it's the number of carbs, or it's the number of pathway. But in general, I would argue it's it's getting too more than we need. So, you, and and again, just to just to restate it, your argument against carbs is not the carbs itself, but just the fact that it's it doesn't satiate us. Like like eating a, a bowl of broccoli yeah. might satiate you, right? Whereas a bowl of pasta might not. So you no. go for seconds. I drink apple juice and I don't get full. Right. If I eat an apple, I will get full. It's right, like, and apple juice might have three huge, apples. It's pure sugar, and it's <laughs> yeah. sugar. That's what apple juice is. It's the sugar in apple. No. Well, what's bad about sugar? Well, so added sugars are one of the few things I'm not going to defend. Um, probably that and trans fats. So added sugars are, so even apple juice is technically not added sugars, but I would argue that you're just getting concentrated sugar. That's what juice is, which is why, I don't know why people often think that juice is healthy. You're just concentrating with that. Added sugars, the sugars that we add, not just to soda, uh, but the stuff that they throw into processed food all over the place to make it more palatable, not good. Empty calories, it's associated with a bunch of bad things, including heart disease and obesity and everything else. And there's no one that can make an argument that that is something that is good for you. So added sugars and added sweeteners 
in, that, are, that are sugars in general are bad. Uh, but that's well, not the same thing as carbs. They they make you gain weight. They can they can be they're they're linked to increased rates of uh, I think eventually type two diabetes. Although again, it's not an exact causal pathway that you can just follow. Um, they're linked to higher rates of obesity, uh, higher levels of heart disease, uh, and so in general, not not good. I'm not going to advocate for added sugars. Do you think sugar? And I don't. I've been reading about this recently that there's. Rumors that Alzheimer's is linked to diabetes. Do you think sugar is related to Alzheimer's? Not that anything is proven. I mean, I think, all, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is just one of those things we don't totally understand yet. It probably has a lot to do with uh, genetics and familial factors and perhaps some environmental that we haven't figured out yet or some mix of the two. But no one has conclusively shown yet that it's related to sugar. Although I, you know, I've even heard as much as saying that Alzheimer's might be relabeled as type three diabetes. Oh wow, they're really stretching it there. So that that's you haven't heard that. No, I mean I've not only not heard. There's there's no evidence mm -hmm. for that. That's that's when we're getting also into all the the information. I mean there are people that can make claims all the time about these kinds of things, but there's no conclusive links. And I this is also where I would also take us take a deep breath. This is the healthiest the human race has ever been ever. We yeah. live longer than ever before. People are dying of almost any disease you can mention at lower rates than ever before. This idea that somehow the food is poisoning us and we're all in mortal danger is is somewhat bizarre. We're doing great. What do you think of um, Dan Buettner's book, The Blue Zones, uh, which basically argues more or less for the Mediterranean diet? I think the Mediterranean diet is a reasonable diet if it works for you. Because, th because it's less processed foods, right? Yep. And it's also, it's like, it is a reasonable diet in terms of what it's trying to get you to eat. It's going to satiate you. It's going to be fine. There have been randomized controlled studies of that diet which show that it does, if you can stick to it, reduce rates of heart disease and some other bad outcomes. So I'm going to buy that. I will agree with it. But What, what do you think is the main ingredient in the Mediterranean diet that that is that that is super healthy? I think it gets you away from processed foods and still makes you full. I see. So it's it's almost like it's not like the food itself, but it just avoids yeah. the bad things. I don't think it's I don't think food's not magical. Food's not medicine. It just isn't. But I think it, it's a healthy diet, which is letting you avoid too much of anything bad and allows you to get most of what people would like to have and and decide. So it's also a good diet is also one you can stick to. That one tends to be a little easier to stick to than I think you, a lot of the prescriptive diets because you feel fuller, faster. And you get a lot of good food. Like it's not like they're like no carbs. No carbs is hard. Rice in the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, and yes, pita. yeah. So it's, and pita's delicious. Or yeah. you know, and so there, it it doesn't say like no fat. It doesn't say no alcohol. It doesn't say you know no salt. It does. So so it's but it's also easier. it's not so much meat. It's as oh, let's call fish and meat, but yeah. it's uh it's more fish than the yeah, other kinds. Tries of meat. to get away from processed meat and certainly processed red meat. And so I I don't think you need to avoid red meat to the extent that the Mediterranean diet. Does but it's fine if the Mediterranean diet works for you. I think it's a it, there's more evidence behind that diet than almost any other. You do mention that fish is better; it could be better than red meat. Sure, because I mean, fish doesn't have much in the as much in the way of saturated fat. There's not there aren't they aren't the 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 bad sort of uh, cohort studies or case control studies that are sometimes linking, especially things to cancer and stuff. Not as much evidence with fish, but it's also not as widely studied. So this is again where it's like I think almost all of those can be part of a healthy diet in moderation if, you, if you're thoughtful about it. So if I were to switch my diet, let's say I was to go from red meat to more vegetables, do you think that, like vegetables are, like people say, eat as, as there's two approaches. One is eat as many greens as possible right. and also have as many colors on your plate but as possible. See, this is where, again, I'd push back on you and say like, you've told me that you feel healthy and you don't need to see a doctor. Mm -hmm. You seem to be like a healthy weight. Mm -hmm. I imagine recently, why are you like worried about changing your diet? Whatever okay, you're I'll doing seems I'll to work for you. I'll tell you why. One thing is, on the good side is, uh, 
I've lost a lot of weight in the past few years, mm -hmm. primarily because simply because eating less. Right. <laughs> so I tend to eat two major meals a sure. day. Right. In the morning, I might have carbs or eggs. Yep. And in the evening, or, or not evening, late afternoon, I tend to have fish. Okay. So I'll have sushi almost every day. Okay. And um, uh, that seems to work for me. Then I would change nothing. But one thing is the negative is I feel like I am not as energized in the late afternoon, evening as I would like to be. So do you exercise? Uh, not as much as I should. So I would say that I will probably do much more for you in that respect than changing your diet. Really? For the for the energy and for and there's there's what kind of exercise? So what I don't I don't even mean think anything huge. So moderate exercise five times a week. Moderate exercise can be brisk walking for thirty minutes. I mean you don't have to go overboard. You know running, elliptical, swimming, whatever you want to choose to do. But thirty minutes a day, five days a week, or vigorous exercise. You don't need to do quite as much. You can do it a little less. But those are all the recommendations. What about muscle think, building. So that works fine. That doesn't. That's not as aerobic, so it doesn't necessarily count as much towards the thirty minutes. I've heard that it helps metabolism. Yeah, that, that's a lot of trainers will tell you that. There's not a ton of evidence when you get super extreme. So basically, every scientific study. Is, well, tell me one scientific study that, that actually is correct. Thirty minutes a day, five days a week. Like there have been lots of studies of, of walking or of exercise. Something. That's the thing is that we know exercise is like a miracle drug, but that's it. Thirty minutes a day, five days a week. Everything above that is like, what are you doing? So tell me some thirty minute easy. Like I'm not. I'm not an exercise. I get on the elliptical. Person. I get on the elliptical 30 minutes a day. I try to do it, you know, three to five or, days. Or a week. brisk walking. Yeah, like if you want to get your heart rate up a bit. That's or really what you're dancing, shooting for. I assume. That'd be fine. <laughs> Anything which gets your heart rate going to a, to a decent extent to like you might like you can talk but not be totally out of breath. 30 minutes a day. That's what you need. And anything above that, fine. But that's the the health benefits start to not show up. Can you um can you reduce the 30 minutes to 10 minutes if you bring your heart rate up much faster? That's me, not to 10. But you could probably get down like I think it's seventy five minutes of vigorous exercise twice a week maybe, and then then with weightlifting like that's that's sort of like the same thing. So you don't have to do a huge amount, but if you're worried about your energy level, I'd say probably your exercise is going to do more than and getting enough sleep is going to do more than changing. How many day. hours of sleep do you think the average person needs? That's so variable. Most I think most people need most adults probably around seven, but for kids it's much more. So funny, like I feel like I need eight, and then last night I slept nine, and I was still really tired. So it's very, it's variable by person too. My wife needs way more sleep than I do. But maybe I, just, I need more exercise. I would say the first thing I would try is not be concerned with your diet. But if you tell me you're trying to lose weight, that's your diet. You need to change that. But if you tell me that you want more energy and to feel better, I'd say try exercise. So uh, here's another one. My when I was growing up, my parents were always so anti-salt. Yeah, like they hated if I put salt in anything. I would put salt on McDonald's French fries and they'd be more worried about the salt than the French fries. So it's fascinating, but like salt, like you think MSG, salt is what makes food taste good. Like that is, I just read a book, uh, I think it was Salmon Knows that. It was salt, fat, acid. I mean, it's right there in the title. Salt is what makes food taste good. Yeah. Um, there have been some monstrous studies, uh, huge, hundreds of thousands of people published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago, which confirmed some of what we know, that if you have high blood pressure and you eat a ton of salt, bad for you. You need to reduce your salt intake. But what they also showed was the people who consume very low sodium diets had a higher risk of heart disease and death than the people who ate too much salt. Like it is not a straight line down that the less you consume, the better you are. It might be U-shaped. And unfortunately, the way we talk about salt is that everyone's eating too much and everyone needs to eat less. And that might be dangerous for some people. We don't know. So I have one friend who um, everything he orders, he puts a ton of salt on. So 
this is the thing. Process. Well, now we're going to get back to processed foods. Besides sugar, salts are one of the ways that processed food tastes better. Like companies that make food, they put a lot of salt in it because that makes them more palatable. So a lot of Americans are getting a ton of salt in food that's been prepared for them that they don't know about. That is what we need to eliminate. The amount of salt that you're adding at the table from the salt shaker is inconsequential almost compared to what's already in your food mm, before you touch that's it. That's really interesting. So if you were cooking for yourself, you almost couldn't add too much salt. Like it's just like that's not what people do. If they're cooking for themselves, the salt they put in the in in the food when they make it and the salt they add at the table, you'd be fine. But uh, it, it's funny. You, you you've mentioned in the book too how it's great to cook for yourself because then you're kind of in control of the ingredients and yep. so on. But me not having so much discipline, um, and you know, let's say spending the first first thirty years of my life, I had this incredible metabolism, yeah. so I never really needed to grow up with any kind of food discipline. Yeah, and it's only become problematic, let's say, in the past five years. So I literally do I keep no food in my apartment at mm -hmm. all. And what I do is I order always order out because it's not like I can order out a bag of Doritos. Correct. Like no, no restaurant or or offers Doritos in the dessert right. section. So I know I'm getting something that's prepared by a chef and the portion's probably not that great, you know, and that's all I can eat. I'd also say it, it depends what you're doing. So I, like even when I talk about it at the end, I'm like, eating out is fine, but you want to try to choose restaurants as much that are cooking by the same rules that you would try to cook by yourself. Yeah. Like, you know, not, minimal amount of processed foods in general. And don't go crazy with salt or other additives just to try to make the food taste better. That's how you get into trouble. You don't even know what you're getting and they're just often adding stuff to the food to make it taste better versus knowing what you're eating. Right, usually I get again sushi okay. and and, and now sushi's going to probably be fine. I mean they're not adding a bunch. I mean the soy sauce is clearly I don't use soy sauce. Then where's the sodium even going to come from? You're talking about like fresh fish and probably rice. There's not much sodium in that probably at all. And so so uh and lately just because of another podcast guest I've been focusing on in the morning green smoothies. So mm. so Smoothies versus juice. What's the story? I'd there? say the same thing. Like I just, I'm not a big fan of any of it. Again, it's like smoothies contain some of the fiber, though. Some, but it's like it's, oh, it's fine. You're probably fine, especially if it's vegetables. I mean, it's like yeah, ooh, green, but it's probably not doing you any good. Like no. you know, this is not any better than right. than what you're. I don't, I don't eat breakfast. And apple pie. You do apple pie. Well, before. apple pie. <laughs> yes, is a, like that's dessert. Yes, I would not have apple pie for breakfast. But uh -huh. but I don't know. Smoothies are not magic. If they are filling you up and you're not getting a ton of bad stuff, great. Um, but there's no science or evidence behind the idea that you're getting super boosts of vitamins or minerals, or you're probably making very expensive urine. So, so probably I should maybe I should sell my urine. Then. Yeah, it's full of all these minerals and vitamins that you can't absorb, and so you're probably peeing them out. So, so uh, again with the Mediterranean diet, there's some ev I, I don't know. You tell me. It seems yep. like there's some evidence that suggests it could slow down Alzheimer's. That's that's like where they're stretching a little bit too far. Mm -hmm. So that's not been shown as strongly as some of the prevention for heart disease and everything else. Now there's hope, and there's some there's some studies which show perhaps that these are associated. But again, you always have to wonder when you look at the associative studies: is there something else? Is it is it that it's certain countries are more likely to stick, and certain ethnicities are more likely to stick, and those those ethnicities have lower rates of Alzheimer's disease? That is possible. So we don't have any kind of evidence that shows if we randomize people and give these people a Mediterranean diet and these people not, they're less likely to get Alzheimer's disease. On the other hand, I'm not going to tell people not to do it. If you like the Mediterranean diet and that's what you want to do, fine. But I wouldn't be moralizing or lecturing people right. that that is going to happen. Uh, so what do you do? <laughs> so I tried to. You just, mentioned it in the book, by the way, but yeah. I just wanted to. No, no, no. It's like, and I've tried, I've tried lots of different diets, and I used to be much heavier than I am now, and I used to not be in as good shape as I am now, and and I found that in general, it is 
cooking a lot more for ourselves, um, being a little more mindful. I'm careful of the calories that I drink. What is, what does mindful mean? That I I think about it. It's it's not it's not just like I'm just going to eat the piece of bread. It's like oh yeah that that I probably don't need that. That's just going to be too easy. Um, I don't. I I love pizza. I don't eat pizza as much as I used to. Not even because I'm avoiding the carbs, but like that is again just like so easy. I mean, if you've made it like as easy as possible to cram as much in as as I can as quickly as possible. I mean, uh, I'm lucky on the pizza front in that I despise like it almost gives really? me a gag reflex. Cheese. Uh, First thing Same. I did when I landed in New York was get a piece of pizza. <laughs> I love pizza, but it's yeah. So it's like I just think about it more. I'm I I don't drink a lot of calories uh, because that's too easy. Is is alcohol a lot of calories? So I'm even thinking about that. Like I tend to drink more scotch or bourbon than I do beer. Uh, is is wine more than vodka? So wine is more calories than vodka. Yeah, so, because of the sugar. Yeah, and because you're just drinking more. What about is gin more than vodka? No, the, all the all the spirits are about the same. Uh, but again, I'm just I'm just and I, I have a beer every once in a while. But I'm just I'm thinking about it. Like you know, two beers is it's a fairly large amount of calories. It's like a couple pieces of bread. Do you, uh, do you ever read the history of the world in six glasses? No. Uh, it's a great book, which basically um, re re looks at the history of the entire planet. Um, based on what we were drinking then. So spirits were easy to store, mm. so it was allowed for more travel around right. the world, which allowed us to get spices and yeah. find America yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So they basically described how the invention of each new type of drink, you know, um, from water to coffee to tea to, yep. to beer to wine to spirits, it changed how we historically were able to navigate the world. Yeah. I mean, I, if I remember correctly, even I think beer was a way to like, you could get calories. I mean, that was how people would take the wheat and put it into something that would keep um, for later consumption. Yeah. So yes, but I don't need it. I can have it because I want it, but I don't need it. So I try, we try to stick to, I, I try to follow those rules about process. By the way, I didn't make up all the rules about processed food. There, A lot of those are from uh, Brazil's nutritional guidelines, which are like a work of art. You know, in America, we are it's very politicized and it's very prescriptive about like this nutrient and that nutrient. Brazil is much simpler. They're like, yeah, try to stay away from the processed foods as much as you can. Well, that's interesting. So it seems like the main advice I would say from you, like like a lot of this book is, um, here's a food category that we think is negative. Here's why all the scientific studies are wrong. And here's the appropriate way to use this food group, whether it's mm -hmm. salt or eggs or meat or butter or, or alcohol, coffee. Um, but then... Um, but if I were to summarize some parts of the book, it would basically say avoid processed foods yeah. because to some extent that they're, they're making it so that we ingest it artificially, not the way our species was intended to, to right. digest it, like apple juice. We've made, because a lot processing in general as we created it over history was to make it easier because it was hard. But toast, for instance. It's too is, easy now. Toast is like processed bread. Totally. Yeah, I mean, first bread's processed, and then we went even further. So, but but meat is like, steak is processed. No, steak is bread, fine. Bacon meat. is processed. Steak is not. Right? But isn't steak because it's cooked? We've outsourced some of our so digestion to cooking. Once it's cooked, it is. there is some processing there, but I would put that in a minimally processed. Or even then, it's like, you know, you are allowed to cook the food before you eat it. because. But again, you're right, it makes it easier to eat. But we acknowledge it like it's safer and it tastes better and that's fine well, too. Well, you had an interesting point though because a lot of people avoid raw because they think they're going to get sal salmonella yeah. oh, and you yeah. talk about it in terms of eggs and you basically say it's 0.012%. It's so small. It's like the idea that we live in fear of this stuff. I mean, there were times when like, yes, there are outbreaks of salmonella and you got to be careful, but most of the salmonella is on the outside of the egg anyway. So if you wash it, you're going to be fine. To oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. If I washed it, it's from the, the chicken. shell? 
It's from the chicken. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's like that's where the most of the, the stuff comes from. It's actually it's not actually in the inside. Why don't they wash it before sterile. they put it in the container. They do, but still it's not perfect. And so because there's so many and they, they they don't even touch it and, and they can I think they can try to do and they have to do that. That's why it's so much safer now than it used to be, because they have improved the ways in which they do that. But uh still the risk. Your, your chance of getting salmonella or coming into an egg which is infected with salmonella is incredibly small. Even if you did, your chance of getting sick is small. Even if you got sick, you probably wouldn't notice. Even if you noticed, you wouldn't get very sick. The chance of getting super ill off an egg is very, very low. Well, And I find eggs do give me some energy. Yeah, like protein. eggs are great. What, what, what's, the ing- what's the macronutrient that gives you the most energy? Is it protein? Is it fats? Is it? Oh, that's such a good question. I, I mean, probably like short term, it's, you know, I guess you can make an argument that it's carbs because it's so easily converted. But the problem is like, we don't really, it's not how we need to run. Like we don't need to be constantly fed. We have plenty of stores of food in our body. Well, so. like for instance, right before a podcast, sometimes I do this, yeah. I'll have a cookie. Yeah. Just because it gives me that a boost. And if you feel like it works for you, I wouldn't tell you to change it. I don't know if it does or not. No, I know I that's the thing. It. Well, I see, sometimes I use that as an excuse. This like, is oh, where, I need my cookie. This is where, like, the scientists and me would say, like, we should do an N of one trial. You should get someone to make a cookie for you using both like sugar and not sugar, uh-huh. and then you don't know what you've gotten, and then keep track of it over the week, like which cookies you thought worked, and then see if it actually made a difference. So, so uh, you know, one area I want to discuss just because it never the, the whole argument around this never made sense to me. But GMOs, gen- genetically modified organisms, it's like, yeah. you know, you see in the grocery store now, uh, a lot of companies make GMO food because it's hard to feed yep. 7 billion people on the planet. And that's one area where I've, n- I've never even for a second doubted that this is totally healthy for you, or at least the same health as the non-genetically That's, that's the key. No one should be under the illusion that food is perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. All food, everything in the world carries some inherent risk. You could be allergic to it. You could have, Who knows? But it is no more unsafe than conventionally grown food. We give conventionally grown food a pass. We're not running tests on it regularly to see how does it affect everyone. What if one in a million people get sick from a regular piece of wheat? We don't do it, but we do do it on GMOs because everyone's panicked about it. And but the danger is no different. What's the political no risk of, of why, why do people hate GMOs? I, I don't even know the argument. I think that they well, there's there's the environmental, there's the corporate arguments, there's the legal arguments, there's the idea that that they're patenting seeds. Fine, put that over. I'll put that to the side. But from a health perspective. People fear, I think, somehow that the science, the genes are going to get out, that if I eat the, the the wheat, that the genetics could somehow get into my genes but or start a fa- I don't know. I would think environmentally you'd want GMOs because, okay, instead of like uh, having all these, you know, using fields for all, you know, wasting field space for all these right. foods, better to make something in a laboratory and you're not, you're not using, wasting all the environment. We haven't seen the promise fulfilled yet. So that's the argument that's used. It's just not gotten there. But the thing is, by using other techniques we have, by crossbreeding, by irradiating seeds, in the past, we have achieved big changes. I mean, Norman Borlaug and the dwarf wheat and, you know, trying to, you know, making wheat that actually didn't grow so high, tipped over, probably saved, you know, a billion people. And Wait, wait, and, what's this one? So Norman Borlaug won the Nobel Peace Prize. I wish I could give you the date, out of 80s or 90s. He basically created what we call dwarf wheat, where they couldn't grow wheat in certain areas because it would fall over and they couldn't harvest it. And he figured out a way to grow wheat that was shorter and arguably saved a billion people. I mean, wow. probably saved more people than anyone else that's ever existed. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize for this. His technique, he, of course, before he died, he was a huge proponent of GMOs because he's like, of course you that's should do this you, stuff. That's how you, do this that how you save the world. Like, yeah, it's like, so these are the tools that we have to us. This is what we should do. Back then it was things like irradiating seeds and hoping for something better or crossbreeding or or grafting or do it. There's all kinds of ways that we use chemicals to change that, but it's very much the genetic manipulation that that panics people. 
how are we going to go from 7 billion people to feed to 14 billion? That's, you have to, we can do it. It just requires using that, think, more land space. And we can't do it with meat. We can't do it with uh, stem cells to grow meat. Well, if we could grow meat, that would be different. Like that would be entirely. But the problem is, I don't think we can raise that many animals. But we could, if we could figure out. First of all, again, if they could figure out ways to create meat in a lab that tasted as good as regular meat, I would do it in a second. I have, I don't want to kill animals. I just, but I like meat. Um, so I would be thrilled with that if they can invent foods that, that have the same taste. So that's potentially one avenue. And of course, as I said before, like forty percent of the world's calories are rice and wheat. Uh, it's still a plant-based world. And so we need to be able to grow more of it to feed people. So, so wait, when I asked the question of uh, what macronutrient will give you the most energy, you said short-term sugar. What about long-term? What about I'd, for the day? So I think protein is probably, and you're now I'm guessing giving you my opinion. I wish, I don't think I have study after study that'll show this, but uh, I try to eat more protein these days. I feel like, like protein station. Like I'm more likely to have eggs and bacon in the morning than anything else. So eggs they consider like the perfect meal. It's got like Eggs everything. are like pure protein. Well, we, I wrote, got into that and I wrote my, my, my column on eggs and I, uh, and then I finally like, you know, did the chapter in the book because my wife and I would be fighting about this because my daughter would eat them every day. And my wife was like, she's going to die of, of heart disease. And I'm like, there's no evidence. I don't think of cholesterol and eggs now they anymore. They literally just changed the USDA guidelines for the first time in 2015 to say that cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. People, There are people who think like that this has been widespread, but literally until two years ago, the USDA guidelines were still saying, don't eat cholesterol. But but you you refer to cholesterol with the trans fats uh, and saying that it's bad. That so trans fats are bad. I think I, I do that in the butter channel. Yes. But trans fats are bad. Like there's you know. But again, that was the whole butter margarine argument. That was the butter so bad we all need to be eating margarine. Of course, you know vegetable oils were liquid. No one likes spreading liquid on toast. So they had to make them into trans fats to make them solid. Now we know the trans fats were the worst thing we probably made in the lab. Now they're banned. And so we half the time we don't know what we're doing. So so I know I'm throwing a lot at you with yeah. all this. But you mentioned vegetable oils and they had to make it solid by, by turning them into trans fats. A lot of people debate what oils are the best to cook with. Mm -hmm. Like Crisco oil is probably bad. So I, I cook with, uh, so if I want a neutral tasting oil, because that's what's called for, I'd probably use like canola oil and otherwise I use olive oil. What about like coconut oil or avocado oil? I don't, or go, I don't, I don't waste time like worrying about that. There's like, there's no evidence that like going, that's the kind of thing I feel like every few years we decide something completely different. It also depends how hot you're making it because sometimes they make arguments about, you know, if the stuff actually becomes aerosolized, like breathing it in, but we're not doing that at home for the most part. What about, and I only have a few more, Like I feel like I'm asking you bullet questions. That's fine. I'm just curious about, food is such an interesting thing because yeah. we do it all day long every day. Yep. And so, okay, avocado, no avocado. I think avocados are great. That's, but it's like, again, it's like just, you know what you're getting. It's a, it's a reasonably high fat, but probably not a bad fat Food, you probably gain weight from avocado? You. you gain weight from anything if you eat too much of it. But I wouldn't like worry about adding it to your diet in the sense that that's what's going to make you overweight. That's not very likely. So um, you mentioned you mentioned you go to therapy. What do you go to therapy for? <laughs> so anxiety, um, in the past what, depression. What, uh, what, what do you feel anxious about? I wish I could give you a solid answer. Uh, it's. I like how you diversify your career. Yeah, you're you're. A doctor, you you write for the New York Times, which is very prestigious. You wrote wrote this book, The Bad Food Bible. It seems like uh, you have healthy. That's the quirky thing about mental health is like you know you you think everything should be perfect and yet it is not. So um, I go because 
for that exact reason, I feel like that's that in general everything is going so well. I should be at peace and happy, and yet I am not. And so think, I'm constantly trying to work on that. Do you think people have like uh, everybody has a different baseline of anxiety? And so some people have a baseline very low anxiety. Some people have a baseline yes. just naturally very. I also think it's changeable. I mean, there's no question that I, I've been going for like two decades. It has definitely improved my life. So there's no question. talk therapy or through drugs? No, to be honest with you, this is where it gets funny. I wrote an article a couple of years ago because um, doctors are averse to the drugs. So when I was a resident and I was having severe problems with depression, um, and I finally went to see a, a therapist, uh, he asked, he, we talked about going, trying drugs, um, and we avoided it because there were still parts of boards for licensing that would ask you specific questions about whether you were on a medication or not. And it was it was pretty pejorative. Like you could not get a license if you reported some things in mental health. And that so, was so trackable. So you reported Prozac, you might not get so be a doctor. So doctors not only avoid medication a lot in general, even though it's gotten better and it's much more accepted than it used to be, they wind up self-medicating. So you have anesthesiologists who commit suicide at incredibly high rates because they have access to bad drugs and they use them. Doctors over-medicate with alcohol and have higher rates of alcoholism and suicide than, than you would expect in the general population. We do not take care of ourselves because there's still this stigma in the profession um, about, about drugs. So I have never really been on an antidepressant because I, I went more through talk therapy and that has worked fine. But I wouldn't be averse to it if I felt like I needed it. What about days. an anti-anxiety drug? Um, I've had to use them periodically, I think in an acute way, like when things are very high, but I'm on nothing sort of long-term and I don't use them very often. But like, I find the therapy to be incredibly helpful. Yeah, I think I think talk therapy is great if you find, like with anything, yeah. most therapists are bad, but some therapists are great. And talk therapies, I always find, I think of talk therapists as like statisticians. Yeah. So I'm going through something that he or she has seen a thousand times. Mm -hmm. So what tends to work? 90 out, nine, 90 out of 100 times, what's the, what, what works for them, and I'll try that. Like, so talk therapy, like going to a good talk therapist, they've seen enough examples of anything I'm going through that is statistically significant, yep. the positive outcomes. And I feel like for a lot of times, I mean, I do the vast majority of talking in the session, and I a lot of times it's I talk and talk and talk, which I don't normally get to do about myself, and then once in a while I just have an insight, and I'm like, ah, I feel like it makes a difference. Or I recognize something from like, my parents or my grandpa or somebody else, then I'm like that, that, and I got, and I want to avoid it with my kids. I want them to not have stuff put on them that I feel was put on me. I'm trying to break a cycle. Like, like what? I think anxiety, pressure, um, uh, Is worry. It money anxiety usually, or Is it, what was that? money anxiety, relationship anxiety? No, it's anxiety? ironically enough, it's not even like it's really. It's more, I think, family obligation, never feeling like. I mean, you mentioned all those things I do, and I worry sometimes. It's like it never feels like enough. And that's a problem. Mm. Like, it's not healthy. Like, I have enough. I've done enough. Like, no, but you know, I, I agree with you. Like, having the need for, like, you're the type of person that you want to make sure your voice is out there and is relevant. And I imagine the issue you have, as opposed to many kind of doctors with TV shows and so on, is they're all talking about things that are obscure, that will make you live to age 300. So, so they're kind of using maybe false science mm -hmm. or hopeful science to to basically spread a message that more people will stop turning the channel right on. absolutely Whereas you're basically just saying ah, ignore all this right stuff so there's not as much stuff to talk about actually no <laughs> although i mean because they keep doing that i have stuff to keep doing right um, but but you're exactly right i think a lot of it is just like calm down like there's just no reason to live your life in fear and in panic this is all going to be fine it's food we Every other animal does on the planet does it without this kind of fear or, or, or worry. Why but, do we have so much trouble? But but then that like again, people want to go. People here's what people want. 
People want to live to 200 with high quality right. of life. Right. And they want to do it through easy means. Right. Well, the <laughs> other thing too is we've cured a lot of the, the big things. Like we honestly, we have made it so that we have fixed a lot of the acute issues. People are living longer than they ever have before. We're still looking to be immortal. And right. like we think this is going to get us there. It's not. It really isn't. So so what do you think will get us there, if anything? I think some, I mean, if they someday figure out like how to actually like slow aging or break, you know, cellular degradation or actually change the genetic code in some way that we don't age, then that's a reasonable way. But that stuff's hardwired in. I mean, I think that's partially why we succeed as a, you know, why, why species advance. Do you, do you believe in this stuff about telomeres? No, I I don't. That increase aging or decrease. See, I don't. I don't think that we have any. I think that's all conjecture. It's the kind of thing where it's like they're going to talk about it on TV, and it's like I'm not nearly sure that we're there yet. I think. I think human beings could live longer than they do now, but I don't see us in the near term without some kind of major genetic breakthrough. uh, You know, making people like immortal. So let's figure out how you can get just in the final few minutes here. Let's figure out how we can get you a TV show. Like, because I feel this is important stuff, but like, but it's not going to be like it's reactive. Today's episode is about how to live to three hundred without exercising or changing your diet. It's more reactive. It's that I I would come on after the news show and like all the things they told you to worry about. I'd be like, don't listen to a thing they just said. You know, all the stuff that they that they just told you to maybe, be panicked about. Maybe don't. something like science scams of the week or something like mm, that. We try. I have a YouTube show and we do some of that. Like, but it's um it's hard to keep up. But that I mean, I feel like to be honest, that's what a lot of my columns are. Uh, yeah. It's like they announced that you know that alcohol is going to give you cancer. I read a piece saying it's not a big deal. They announced you know a week ago that hey, guess what? Birth control still gives you breast cancer. I can write a piece saying like it's not nearly as bad as you think it is. Um, those were like two of my last three columns. I, like that's what I do. So it's uh, I think it's that I react to sort of the hyperventilating news that that people hear that this is they found something else. This is what's killing you. Now you can if you stop doing that, you're going to be better off. And I go, no, it's not. I also like, a random thing about you. What about pregnancy after thirty five? So again, it's like there's a higher risk of a problem with the child, but not like huge. It's greater than it would be, but that's a relative risk, not an absolute risk. It's still very low. Um, and for most women, I think for a lot of women who are making the choice to either do career first or for whatever reason to wait to 35, it is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, is it more dangerous than pregnancy at 25? Yeah, but that's a relative risk. The absolute risk difference is not that huge. I think I think relative versus absolute risk is like the favorite technique yep. of doctors to get you to get more tests. Anyone. And spend oh, more right. money. Panic you, absolutely. Because if something, like they'll say, oh my gosh, you have a 50% more chance of X, uh, you better get it tested. Well, you might have just gone from 0.001% right. to 0.002%. That's exactly right. And people don't, like I remember one time, this is 20 years ago. My wife comes back from, you know, I have two kids. My wife comes back crying like, oh, I need to get this test that I wasn't planning on getting because now I have a 20% more chance for this. And I look up the actual statistics. Yeah. She just went from a 0.0001% right. to 20% more. Well, the <laughs> breast cancer and birth control for women under for women 35 age or younger, for every 50,000 women that use hormonal breath control, breast, birth control, it's going to be one might get breast cancer. I mean, one in 50,000, you're going to get hit by a car. Like that, it's like that that's not that big. We do things every day which are smaller risks than that without even thinking about it. To obsess over that is 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 for many women to obsess over that would be irrational. You can make a choice depending upon what you think your harms and benefits, but it is perfectly rational to think it is worth a one in fifty thousand chance 
of of this happening when we're not even sure that that's true to get the benefits of 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 birth control which also by the way include lower rates of some cancer so that the overall rate of getting cancer on birth control is actually lower than if you're not taking it only by cherry picking the breast cancer do you see an increase you know what this reminds me of and i'm just i'm thinking about your career now uh so richard carlson he wrote all the don't mm -hmm. sweat the small stuff yep. books so he wrote a couple of books um with much more complicated titles like how to be happy and yep. enjoy life blah, blah blah and then suddenly he hit this don't sweat the small stuff that was a huge bestseller and then he's like don't sweat the small stuff yeah, for kids don't sweat the small stuff for bosses <laughs> right. don't. so i feel like you could do something like that like you know the the bad woman's health bible or the bad yeah. men's health bible and and you could kind of um find some it's just in the title somehow. You can yeah. find something that you could then go through all the things that everybody worries about. Like, do you need this, this, and this in your pregnancy? Do you need this, this, and this uh, for, for men's health as you age? Do you need this, this, and this for Alzheimer's? You know? we, we're just terrible at understanding risk. Like, look, the number one killer of children in the United States by far is cars. Cars. If we did news stories every day that said, we have discovered what kills kids, it's cars. No one should drive a car ever again. We, we, that's crazy. No one's going to do that. We accept the societal good of cars is so great, we're willing to accept that it kills more children than anything else. But seatbelts now have reduced We've the reduced risk. it, yeah. but it's still number one. No one ever says, oh my God, if we could just save one child, it'd be worth, no, no, that's crazy. We love cars, we need cars, cars are societal good. Why can't we have that same kind of, of discussion with things that cause cancer or things that cause heart disease? Instead, it's like, oh my God, that infinitesimally raises my risk of cancer. We have to have none of it. Okay, I feel like I can ask you about anything. What about climate change? <laughs> so I think climate change is, I mean, there's, I think, overwhelming evidence that, that that is getting hotter. I mean, I feel like it's all the time. I don't know what like doomsday scenarios are, like how bad it's going to get. It worries me, but I don't- How much is man-made, you think? I think- we are a cause. I mean, I do because it's like, again, it's just sort of, I feel like that the evidence says that and the fact that so many scientists seem to agree, but I'll freely admit, like I have not read all of the studies. The ones I have read are pretty convincing. So, so Dr. Aaron Carroll, this has been such a pleasure. I've learned so much. Uh, but again, I want to summarize, uh, uh, unprocessed foods is better than processed foods. Yep. Uh, exercise 30 minutes a day, yep. uh, but just could be brisk walking yep. is, is after that is there's marginal utility, Correct. marginal gain. Um, uh, and don't be anxious about all these no. other do, food Do what things. works for you and just, you know, just, just be thoughtful about I, it. And, I think probably less calories better than more calories. <laughs> yes. That in general is going to work, but you know, again, it's like if you're healthy and you're fit, don't worry about this so much. Like yeah. the idea, everyone is always thinking that they're doing it wrong. You got to do something differently. A lot of us don't have to do that. And you don't have to be thin, like truly thin, thin to be healthy. It's a remember, it's like a lot of the studies are for, yeah, you don't want to be obese or overweight. That is not good. But you also don't need to be real thin. Don't don't sweat those last five or 10 pounds. Like just just be happy. And And also me about to be 50, I should probably go for a colonoscopy. Yeah, it's like, and I, this is where I would actually talk to a doctor and see if it's useful, but it's probably worth, that test is probably worth getting. I can't remember if it's every five or 10 years. This one being a pediatrician doesn't help. And you get um, that with a gastroenterologist. Yes. So you want, your primary care doc won't do it. Right. Your gastroenterologist will do it. But you're willing to be my primary care doctor. Yes, I will, <laughs> yes. Have my, take my number. And if you have questions, anytime. What insurance do you take? Oh, uh, I don't ever charge. Uh, like, all right. Like France, <laughs> I don't charge at all. All right, well, Dr. Aaron Carroll, I really enjoyed the Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. I know we only touched on like 
maybe 10% of the topics in here. I'd really recommend anyone read this to get the other 90%. There's there's so much interesting things. At the very least, you will be great in cocktail parties yes, if you read this. absolutely. Because there's so much BS out there and you'll be able to correct everyone and be that annoying guy yep. who says, no, you could eat like bacon and yep. eggs and salt and MSG. The MSG is my favorite. I'm going to go get shrimp crackers right now. Perfect. And, uh, and I'm having a coffee. So Perfect. Thanks so much, Dr. Thank Carl. you. Appreciate it. And I, I want to add also, if you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear all about my other podcasts, please subscribe. It helps me so much. You don't even know. Please subscribe to the James Altucher Show on either iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is you find my podcast. Subscribe to it so that uh, we stay in business and, and keep having great guests. Thanks so much. Next time on the James Altucher Show. I know people, you know people, James, who are writers, actors, creatives. They're not getting picked by the system. They're not world famous, but they're thriving. They're making a living doing the kind of work that they believe in. I call that the new renaissance. I just think it it comes down to the fact that nobody's going to believe in you until you do. And I don't think we fake it till we make it, but we do believe it till we become it. And to be clear, I don't think you have to starve. You can become what I call a thriving artist. Walt Disney, for many years, basically took every dollar that they made and they reinvested into the Walt Disney Company. And they were constantly begging for more loans from the bank. I mean, it was rough financially for years. And somebody came to Walt when things were really taking off. They wrote him a letter and they said, you're just doing this for the money. You're a sellout. And he wrote them back a letter and he said, no, 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 no. You, you misunderstand me. We don't make films to make money. We make money so that we can make more films. Mm. And I've lost the art of it. And so this is just my opinion, but I argue that what you want to be is not a starving artist and not a necessarily a sellout artist. You want to be a thriving artist. And that's somebody who makes money so they can make more art. I love reversing it like that. 